Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quick, quick. No, it's going to start. Sorry, excuse me. Sorry, can we just um, get past with a... Yeah, if you could just move your legs... Yeah, and the other leg. Great. <sighs> Crikey, you made it. Popcorn? I've heard this is going to be really good. Okay, shh, here we go. It's starting. Shh, quiet. Stop, stop whispering. Stop rustling. Hello, welcome to Patented, a motion picture spectacular. Minus the motion pictures all about... The History of Inventions. I am your host. My name is Dallas Campbell. Thank you very much for your company. Hey, today's show is about the rise and fall of cinema, a subject very close to my heart. Or should that be the rise and fall and rise and fall and rise again of the cinema? What was the first actual cinema building, like dedicated building, dedicated to the screening of films? When were the heydays of cinema going and where are we now with it? Do we still go to the cinema as much or do we prefer to stay at home and watch Netflix, etc.? Well, my guest today is the very wonderful Trevor Griffiths, who's a historian at the University of Edinburgh, who has studied our changing and fascinating relationship with the cinema over time. I hope you enjoy. Welcome, Trevor. Thank you, Dallas. Friend of the show. You're a friend of all of our producers. You're a friend of Freddie's. Is that right, Freddie, our producer? I've known Freddie for a long time, given that I've known Martin, his dad, for quite a considerable time. Ever since I've been in Edinburgh, which has been since 1994, I've known him. Not only are you a friend of Freddie and Freddie's dad, you're also a friend of other producers, Sophie. Well, not a friend. Aren't you a dissertation supervisor? A dissertation supervisor, which I don't think means you count as a friend, exactly. But not an enemy as such? Oh, hopefully not. Were you a harsh dissertation supervisor? Oh, I probably was. Probably was. But I'm I'm harsh with everybody, uh, including myself, let's put it that way. Quite right. Quite right. You've got to have standards. (laughs) These are important. Definitely. What was Sophie's dissertation on? Uh, It was to do with uh, crime films in the early Saudi era linked to concerns about gang warfare, the sort of moral concerns surrounding certain types of cinema, and particularly the gangster films, which started to come out of Hollywood and were immensely popular at the time. The early Jimmy Cagney, things like that. Great. We're actually going to talk about cinemas, as in the buildings. But actually, even so, 
So many of yours and certainly my formative memories of life took place in cinemas. Crikey, I remember going to see Indiana Jones, the very first Indiana Jones film. I'll date myself even further. No, I can go further back. <laughs> Bambi was my first film. Crikey, you know that? But I'm just thinking of like Greece, I remember. Oh, I never saw Greece. No. I remember we queued around the block at the ABC in Newcastle. Because that's what happened yeah, in cinema in those days. You had to bloody queue to get yeah, in. Definitely. Oh, for particular films, yes. But yeah. of course, uh, I mean, the standard one would be because of continuous showing. You could turn up whenever. So you could come in the middle of a film and you'd sit there in the middle really? of a... Yeah. I can remember arriving, sitting in the middle of a B picture. And then you'd watch the rest of the B picture, gradually working out what was going on. You'd watch the main feature. Then the B picture would start again. And you'd suddenly be thinking, ah... It all makes sense now. And then you'd say, right, well, this is, this is where we came in. We might as well stop now because we've seen the rest of it. I'm just old enough to remember B pictures. I remember going to see Jason and the Argonauts. Oh, Ray Harryhausen. Ray Harryhausen. There you go. The Rex Cinema, Macclesfield. You got around. <laughs> yeah. I remember going with my dad. I remember there was a B picture. I can't remember what it was. I think it was like Sinbad or I can't remember. It was some kind of adventure thing like that. Yeah. I remember that finished. And I thought that was the film we'd come to see. And I got up ready to go. He said, no, 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 that was just a B film. We haven't started yet. I'm like, this. This is too good. You mean there's like another film? I know, another to come. Talking of Ray Harryhausen, that moment in that film, the bit where the, he throws the teeth of his enemies onto the ground, and from those teeth, these skeletons rise from the dirt. <laughs> Honestly, as a, I don't know how old I was, I was, like seven or eight, that will never leave me. Terror of that scene. That, and I watched The Exorcist when I was 10, <laughs> and the terror of that will never, ever leave me. Cinemas, as in yes. things, as in places that one would go to to watch films. Where do they even start? So I think of the sort of Lumiere brothers, is that right? Do we go even back from there? That's kind of where I imagine cinema starting. That's particularly where you, where you get what you'd think of now as something identifiably cinematic, where it's a moving yeah. picture. Prior to that, you're dependent on things like magic lanterns, where somebody's there in front of a screen telling you a story, and occasionally the image varies. The image takes you through the story, but they don't move, they don't connect terribly much. You know those sort of shadow pictures, shadow puppet shows yep. you get with shadows. In a way, that's kind of a proto-cinema, isn't it? I'm thinking of... Yes. In yeah. India, perhaps, they'd have those shadow puppets, I remember. That's right. And some films would adopt that technique. Mm. But yeah, there are lots of these precursors just trying to tell a story visually because in a pre-literate age, it really makes sense to try and draw people in through that. Another one would be the panorama where you'd have a big picture on a large screen and through a changing the lighting... You could change the effect and you get a, a sort of mini narrative going through that kind of thing. So there are lots of these early attempts before the successful projection of moving pictures on celluloid starts. I remember Werner Herzog, who I never talk about ever on this podcast, <laughs> in Cave of Forgotten Dreams when he's exploring the Lascaux Caves in, in France and he's looking at these pictures of animals that from thousands and thousands of years ago. And he talks about them as a kind of proto-cinema. Because when you light a fire inside the cave, the flickering of the light makes the yep. animals appear to kind of move. And he talks about in his German voice, it is like a proto-cinema. Did they invent cinema thousands of years ago? <laughs> well, in a sense it is, isn't it? Because 
it's all about the appearance of movement because these pictures don't actually move. It's just uh, the way they're put before us that makes us look as if they move. So there you go. Okay, so early cinema, when are we talking? So 18, like really early, the first kind of projected film. First public shows in France through the Lumieres, it's 1895. In Britain, it's 1896. Okay, back then there weren't sort of dedicated cinemas like the Rex in Macclesfield or the ABC in Newcastle. (laughs) (laughs) Sadly not. No, no, you absorb it within existing entertainment media such as variety theatre. So the film is the last bit because you can't sort of stop and set it all up and then go back to a live act. So you have it at the end of either of the first half or the end of the whole thing. And there it goes. It fits in very nicely. Is there such thing as the first cinema? Like a cinema as we would recognise a cinema with seat and a screen at the front and a projection behind it? No, it's, it's quite difficult to say precisely which would be the first cinema. There are lots of places which claim to be that. They're mostly in converted buildings. So buildings that have been used for other things. So they're not dedicated and built from scratch. That really starts after about 1910. That's when you start getting purpose-built cinemas. Oh, okay. So around about, well, 1910. What was happening in 1910? I'm thinking about, um, what kind of films would have been 1910? Like German Expressionists. I'm thinking about The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. But, But what about things like Pathé newsreels. Didn't people go and see newsreels at cinemas? Well, the big attraction was always said to be what they call local topicals. The thing you've got to try and do is to offer people something that's fairly unique to your show. Right. There are lots of films in general circulation because what people do who show films at the start is they buy a copy. So they've all got their own copies of a film which they then trundle around showing to people. And sometimes it works for them, sometimes it doesn't. If they arrive somewhere and people say, well, we've seen that. We've seen Georges Méliès' Trip to the Moon. We don't want to see it again, thank you very much. That was a problem someone had who was touring West Central Scotland in about 1903. And he said, I've got a trip to the moon. And they go, oh, passe. You'd buy the reel. Yeah, you buy it. And you show it for as many times as you can make money out of it. The problem is then you've got it. And what else do you do with it? And it's a big fire hazard. So eventually you move instead to specialist distributors who then rent the films out. And that way you get a bigger turnover of films starting when the industry really starts to grow. God, I don't mean to turn this into a nostalgia fest, <laughs> but I remember in the 1980s, when you go to the cinema, the prints were generally terrible because you'd get films, they'd be in America first. And then a few months later, they'd come to the UK. I remember when E.T. was released. We couldn't wait for E.T. to come to the UK. But because those prints had done the rounds in the Midwest and all kinds of flea pit cinemas around America, they'd come to Britain at the end and you'd get these terrible, old crackly. Yeah, Yeah, you'd have this sort of cascade system where you get the first run cinemas getting it, then the second run cinemas get it, the third run. And unless they're they're producing lots and lots of prints, you're at the the mercy Mm. of the previous projectionist who might just have pushed it through a a machine. You might lose the start, you might lose the ending or things like that and people would complain. I've come across cases where there are exhibitors in small villages who are receiving films that they're delivered through the public transport system and in one place in Fife they said they came along on the tram and they just threw the reel into the street just outside the cinema so they can see the reel sort of unwinding as it's going down the street. (laughs) (laughs) So goodness knows what that, that was like. Fun fact, I used to be a cinema projectionist Uh, well uh, hold on (laughs) at my school we used to have a cinema club and we had a little theater and we used to get you know 16 millimeter reels would be Mm. would be sent to us crikey wins the mid 80s and i remember 
having to change reels and sitting in the booth. We had Gandhi. I did. I did Chariots of Fire. Lots of Bill Forsyth films, I remember. Gregory's Girl, Local Hero, those sorts of things we had when they all first came out. So I have a great fondness for the art of having to be quick to change reels. <laughs> Definitely. Having to spot the little cigarette burn in the yeah. corner. Go, quick, quick, <laughs> yes. change the reel. And those sorts of things. Okay, so 1910, that's when we were first getting cinema. Let, let's talk about the growth of cinema. I mean, I always imagined cinema to be the at that time, certainly to be the poorer cousin of going to the theatre. Posh people went to the theatre. And I thought I always kind of assumed that cinema became much more of a working class activity. It does. Once you start getting specialist showings and you don't need as much live performance to back it up, then the price can come down. So about 1910, when you are getting specialist cinemas, the price is coming down from, say, sixpence to a shilling, which it could be early on, down mm. to nearer threatens to sixpence. This is old money, of course, so it's two and a half pence top in new money, maybe down to a penny, uh, a single penny, where children could get in for matinees for a penny. So it, the price comes down and that opens up the audience much more. And also, I guess we have to remember this is pre-television. So entertainment at that time, I guess, was theatre, radio. Well, radio doesn't come in until in the 1920s, so we're pre-radio. Oh, crikey. So we're pre-radio. You mentioned L'Homme dans la Lune, Lumiere Brothers' famous film. What else was being shown at that time? Are we sort of Chaplin times? Chaplin is First World War, when Chaplin really becomes popular. The first time he appears as the Tramp is 1914. And 1915 is his big year in Britain. That's when he really starts to take off. One of the big attractions, as I said earlier, is local films. So the way to get people in is something unique. When you go to put on a film show in a particular area, you take a film of the area. You advertise the fact and you say you can come along and maybe see yourself or see right. people you know. Like kind of cine film, like kind of home cine film. Yeah. But that would yeah. be shown at the, uh, at the cinema. How interesting. So they would advertise, have you been cinematographed? Come and see yourself <laughs> as others see you, oh, as it were. And there are lots of stories of people doing this. And even into the later period when managers are asked how do we get more people in one of the ideas they keep coming up with is well let's make a film of the local area advertise it and people will come in it's still seen as a great attraction and the great thing is it's unique to that show mm. this isn't like any sort of film that's going around that's standard part of a standard program it's unique to that and so people will come because it's unique and do any of these films I mean, presumably they exist still. I don't. It's funny, I don't remember seeing them or, or really hearing about these. They do, because in the 1990s, a whole collection of these films turned up in Blackburn, in Lancashire, in a photographer's shop, a firm called Mitchell & Kenyon, who we knew had made films because they made films during the Boer War. They made reenactments of Boer War battles in the hills above Blackburn. But they made, we knew we made lots of these local films, but very few survived. But it was found that lots of the negatives had survived in their shop and they were discovered when they were refurbishing the shop. So now they reside at the British Film Institute and they're one of the largest collections of early films. But they have their equivalents elsewhere. Yeah, I was going to mention the BFI because all these BFI is this great repository of early films like that. Actually, I, I saw one relatively recently. It was about St Kilda. It was a film just sort of chronicling life on St Kilda and looking at the St Kilda community. There's that film where a boat goes up the west coast, up the route, and they, they land and people are either scurrying because they don't want to be filmed. Yes. Exactly. Or they're all gathered around, what on earth is this, this new technology? Before we talk about the advent of sound, back then, when cinema was still silent, would you have an organist? I'm imagining a kind of a Wurlitzer rising from the orchestra pit and, and some poor Wurlitzer playing along. Well, they do as much as they can to add to the pictures because yeah. the pictures just silent would make very little impact so you could have music 
music, and that could be a pianist on an upright piano, or it could be usually they had what they called an orchestra, which was usually just a sort of trio or quartet, and certainly someone on percussion just to add a little bit of pounds to it. Uh, they would add sound effects. They used to sell machines that would give you basic sound effects. Or on occasion, I mean, in Aberdeen, I've come across people who were at the side of the screen and they were mouthing dialogue to almost create a talking picture, as it were. I recently, I say rec- recent for me is within the last 20 years, uh, I saw John Cale from the Velvet Underground. The Welsh John Cale, or John Cale. What a wonderful voice. Anyway, he did the... Royal Festival Hall, they did a screening of some early German cinema. I think it was it was something, I think the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari or Metropolis, I forget, one of those. And he did, he played live alongside, just kind of improvising on the piano. It was the most wonderful, amazing yeah. experience. Come so completely different to going to see a, a sort of a film there. That's it. And now we pay so much more attention to it because it's unusual. Then I suspect they just took it for granted. There was space for the imagination. You know, you'd see silent films and improvised music and the audience had to do a bit of work figuring out what was going on and imagining all the things that are missing. I mean, how far, whether the music added, because sometimes there are reports that they had little libraries of music, so little cues for, oh, this is a, a romantic scene, oh, here's a bit of romantic mm. music. And sometimes they would get it wrong, because of course, they can't really rehearse that often, because new films are coming around so frequently. So there are complaints that the music was often totally inappropriate, and, uh, <laughs> and didn't really assist. But usually they could have these little stock cues that they could just bring in occasionally, little potpourris. It's quite fun, actually, when you sort of take classic movies because you can do this now because it's it's the internet and you put the wrong music over music and i did it someone else has done it but i'm sure i invented it so i'm going to claim it i used to enjoy taking inappropriate movies and putting as the credits would rose i put the grange hill theme <laughs> on and and it just changes like, like the end of as someone did not me someone else did it on youtube but the end of terminator it's all very serious and Los Angeles is burning, and there's a do 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 do. It's really good, but not the sausage on the fork or anything like that. <laughs> not the sausage on the fork. Uh, that's probably a cultural reference too far. Uh, yeah, I fear um, it is. <laughs> hey, listen. Okay, well, let's talk about. Okay, so cinema. Let's talk about the popularity of cinema. Sound obviously is going to change everything presumably and then color so let's talk about the sort of golden age of cinema it suddenly become popular when is that sort of apex of of popularity uh, the peak of popularity is the second world war and just after when really there's nothing else available all of the forms of entertainment well most of the forms of entertainment are closed down but the coming of sound which in uh, is really from about the mid-20s in the united states so the first sound film is often credited as the jazz singer although it's predominantly silent it's still recognised as the point at which Al Jolson says you entered nothing yet and that's it everyone wow because they were used to song coming out of there were lots of musical short musical films coming out so to hear someone singing was they wouldn't have got used to it but they it would be fairly familiar but to hear someone speak and to be able to hear them that, that really was new in Britain it tends to be from about 1929 to 1930 when lots of cinemas are wiring for sound there are lots of new sounds systems available that you can choose from because of course you've got to try and amplify this sound across auditoria which may be quite large on occasion and sometimes it, they don't work so sometimes they have to get another system in but they always seem because they're in, so keen to invest in it it's an indication that it's seen to pay people are coming in in big numbers the interesting thing is that around about that time they were asking people did they want to see or see and hear a sound film and if you hadn't heard a sound film generally you were indifferent you weren't that bothered but once you'd heard it then you no longer wanted to go back to to silence so you stuck with sound we'll be back after this short break 
I'm James Patton Rogers, a war historian, advisor to the UN and NATO, and host of the Warfare Podcast from History Hit. Join me twice a week, every week, as we look at the conflicts that have defined our past and the ones shaping our future. We talk to award-winning journalists. ISIS, this peculiar strain that we all came to know very well in the mid-2010s, really got its start because of the US invasion of Iraq. We hear from the people who were actually there. The Sudanese have been incredible. They have managed to get supplies to people, to individuals who are suffering. And we learn from the remarkable historians shining a light on forgotten histories. For the most part, the millions of people who were taken to those camps were immediately murdered. Auschwitz combined the functions of death camp and concentration camp and slave labor. Join us on the Warfare Podcast from History hits twice a week, every week, wherever you get your podcasts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's talk about the buildings themselves and, and how they've changed. Because I, I certainly remember a kind of my experience of cinemas is they seem to be in quite kind of plush, what looked like theatres, like red velvet seats. And I'm thinking again of the, the Rex in Macclesfield and the, and the ABC in Newcastle where I saw Star Wars. I don't know. They were kind of exciting places, They're like a theatre with a stage and a curtain that would sort of go up. That's right. And there was that drama. Some in the 1920s as a vogue walk for what were called atmospherics, where they would take on the guise of another setting. So you, it might be uh, a medieval barn is one case. It might be a castle. It might be a western town. It might be a, a, a wooded glade. All the interior decoration yeah. is designed to transport you to another place. Well, my favourite cinema of all, Mann's Chinese Theatre on Hollywood Boulevard. I used to live in Los Angeles. So we used to go to Mann's and that was, you know, obviously very themed around this oriental kind of look of, I don't know when Mann's was made, probably the 1920s, I suspect. It, it's then, you, there's a real vogue for that before you get into the sort of more modernist mm. art decor style 
uh, which yeah. becomes more typical. Yes, Art Deco. That's interesting. Art Deco definitely seems to sort of work its way into yeah. cinema buildings. Most famously with the Odeon chain, which really develops in the 1930s on the back of sound films. So we've got sound, suddenly colour. Wizard of Oz, is that the first colour film from memory? No, no, there are, there are colour films before that. People are experimenting with colour going way back. Because a bit like adding sound yeah. to early cinema, there's a, a patent taken out by an American based in Britain called Charles Urban in 1906 for what's called Kinema Colour. And he starts producing these films. Now, you need specialist equipment to be able to project it. So it's only the largest places can afford to do so. But he's making quite prestigious films in colour, including the coronation celebrations in Delhi in 1911, and produces a two-hour film of that, of which very little survives. Mm. It tends to be sort of two-based colour, so it's, it's red and green. It's not the three-base of Technicolor, so it's not quite perfect. But you start getting with Technicolor in the 1930s, yes. you start getting these films. But the, most films are black and white until probably the 1960s, so it's not a sudden move. The first time I saw The Wizard of Oz, I remember thinking, you know, the first opening act is in black and white until yes. she crosses over into Oz, and suddenly it's not just colour. It's, it's technicolor. <laughs> it's like the color, colorist thing you've ever seen. I remember at the time going, holy crap, that's pretty amazing. I mean, I'd, I'd seen Bambi before and stuff, but I see, I don't know, I just have that real memory of seeing The Wizard of Oz for the first time. Yeah, I have a memory of The Wizard of Oz and being terrified by the flying monkeys. That was the main thing, I'm talking well, well, flying monkeys and green yes. witches oh. and stuff, a bit like Ray Harryhausen. It was, well, actually, let's talk about children in the cinema. We talked about the sort of early sort of culture of the cinema. When did it become a family thing? It was, I mean, presumably Disney of the 1950s and the 1960s would have had a big a big part of that animation. And- yes, because uh, Disney is one of the first to decide to try and make films specifically for children. The industry doesn't do that. What it does, it tends to, you create a program based on a variety of films that you think will appeal to a variety of people in the audience as far as possible. Families are going quite early on. They tend to go on Saturdays. That's the big family night out. During the week, it's young people by and large. And, and children are the most regular cinema goers, right from the, the sort of early days of specialist cinemas, when it becomes cheap, and yeah. parents can just give them a penny, go on, go to the pictures. It's not cheap anymore going to the pictures. Oh, no. Well, no. Let's talk about a little bit about the sort of culture of going to the cinema and how it's changed. I mean, for me, obviously, the 1980s and the big films of the, of the 1980s, obviously, we, there was VHS we had. So you could watch, you could go to video shops and rent films but they were all films from a couple of years ago you certainly couldn't watch the latest films you went to the cinema i watched all the you know the three star wars films and the indiana jones films and all and et and all those big classic films of the 1980s and it seemed that everyone went to the cinema there was a collectivism about going to the cinema it was something that we all did as as families as kids and I'm interested in, is that still the case? I mean, my kids go to the cinema, but I don't, with the advent of streaming and the way we live now, it seems to have changed. And I'm wondering if you could sort of take us over that that sort of arc. You've hit upon what becomes the pattern from about the 1960s onwards, where, because there's a competition from television, which is classically the everyday family experience, the people who don't want to share in the family experience, who don't want to watch what their parents are watching, the young people, go out to the cinema still. So they're the ones that become the staple of the audience. And the industry relies primarily on young adults for most of the time. But then they also have these blockbusters, which will appeal to family audiences. So those are the two audiences as you get, with the young adults being the everyday cinema goer. But that's when you only have one television in the house and you don't want to share what everybody else is watching. Now you're freed from that. You can watch the television, you can watch 
moving images on all sorts of equipment in the privacy of your own room. And <laughs> witchcraft. now houses are more comfortable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now houses are more comfortable. You can do that. So there isn't the unique appeal any longer. How has the kind of venues themselves changed? How have they changed in response to changing technologies? Yes, I mean, they continually do because what they find by the 1980s in Britain particularly, is in they're, they're in the wrong places. They're in the centre of towns where people don't want to spend a lot of free time. They're no longer central to people's free time. So they start to relocate in out-of-town areas, the multiplexes, where people will drive to them and will uh, take in the film in addition to having a meal or perhaps shopping or something like that. So the whole experience changes and the type of people going also begins to change as well. I wonder if there's going to be a resurgence of cinema. I mean, certainly the cinemas where I live, they do things like the seats have become more comfortable. They serve like drinks to your seat. You can buy sort of food there. It's become a little bit more... I don't know, an event in order to try and win back customers. That's it. But as a result, it's got to be more occasional than it used to be. The idea of doing that three or four times a week, it's no longer an event. So it's people are going, but they're not going nearly as frequently as used to be the case. The audience is a fraction of what it was. And of course, recently the pandemic hit it very badly. It's bounced back, but it hasn't bounced back to pre-pandemic levels as yet. What can they do to sort of bring back audiences? It's probably going to be the case that, uh, a bit like in the old days when managers had to know their audience or which audience they were gearing things to, then that would determine which films they booked. Now it's going to determine how they market things. Are they going to be go for particular niches, particular types of things like the sing-along movies or that type of thing to get people back? So to try and add something, again, you're looking to add to what is the basic thing rather than just running something through a projector. No detriment to skills of the people doing it, I'm sure. Well, it's digital projectors now. There's no, there ain't no celluloid anymore. It's all digital. No, no. I, I was deferring to your own experiences with well, 16 exactly, mil. That's yeah. it. You're there. <laughs> you see. The only reason I became the projectionist, by the way, is because I, I could have a cheeky cigarette school. Shh. Oh, you, you could do that with 16 mil. Because had it been 35, you'd have been in real trouble. So really what you're looking to do is, to, I suppose, is to try and add on to provide something different. Like, as you say, having these plush seats, having meals, food, whatever, delivered to your seat, something that will add to it. But it means it becomes a special event rather than becoming the staple, the everyday staple of what people are doing. For you, Trevor, favorite, do you have a sort of favourite cinema, like a favourite building in your sort of experience Ooh. that you just think, oh, this, I love going here? <laughs> <laughs> or are there a few? You can have a few. Like, where's your cinema of choice? There are a few. I mean, the one I always remember going to was the Odeon in my hometown, Burnley. And it was the biggest one in the area. And I remember going to a children's matinee in about 1970. I better say it. It was about 1970. And it was horrible. It was just like licensed riot. It was just lock the doors and put on any old nonsense. It was a 1930s Western, as I recall. But no one was paying any attention to it. They were just rioting. That's where we used to go. So we saw the earliest, my earliest James Bond, The Wizard of Oz on a rerun, as it always was before rerun because it wasn't shown on television until the 70s over here. Various other ones. I remember the sound of music and the trailer breaking <laughs> down twice just as Julie Andrews crested the hill. People laughed uproariously and were probably disappointed that she finally made it. And then you had to suffer two more hours of that stuff. But anyway, I love, I love cinemas. I mean, I, you know, in London where I live, the Prince Charles Cinema on Leicester Square, which, which was a kind of second run cinema, which was great if you'd missed films and it was dirt cheap. That was, it was always you know, great cinema. The screen on the green in Islington, which I was always excited about because the Sex Pistols played there in 1977. But it's also a really, really nice <laughs> cinema. Um, but when I lived in Los Angeles, yeah. I used to go to Man's Chinese Cinema, which was a very famous cinema because at the beginning of The Pink Panther, the cartoon, 
that he gets out of his crazy pink car and walks into man's Chinese cinema. So I was always very excited about that. And also just across the road, the Cinerama Dome, which was a kind of geodesic oh, dome. And I remember yes. going to see films there. And that was, a, again, a sort of such a classic building, beautiful bit of architecture. That's it. The height of the 1950s, 60s desire for big, yeah, really big screens, screens, about as big as you yeah. can get. I miss the massive screens. I tried to watch Lawrence of Arabia the other day on my phone. Don't do it. Oh, my word. No, no, no. You no, need no. the 70-millimeter <laughs> cinemascope experience. I mean, that was made for cinemascope. Yeah. That really was. Uh, Trevor, it's been a pleasure. I could talk to you all day about cinemas and movies and favorite things because cinema is a big part of my life and has been forever and always will be. But a lovely little tour, a lovely little tour of the origins of cinemas themselves. Excellent. Thank you very much for joining us. No problem. Thank you us. very much, Dallas. So there we go. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you're enjoying the show. Don't forget to tell all your friends and family. If you are, don't forget to subscribe and like and do all the things that algorithms want you to do. And also don't forget if you've got a suggestion for a topic, something that you're really into perhaps, something that you've been fascinated about for a long time, something you've wondered about or something you know a lot about and you think other people should know about, you can email us at patented at historyhit.com or give me a poke on social media. Um, If you have poked me on social media and I haven't responded, there's a reason for that. It's because I'm really bad at social media. Sometimes I go for weeks without looking at it. So I apologise. I'm going to get on to all those unread DMs and instant messages and what have you. Look forward to your company next time. It's always a pleasure. I will see you then. 